What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I think what I've really learned through this whole period is to bring my full self to everything I'm doing, whether that's, you know, the fact that I'm going to get married or going to have a kid. It's not really be shy about those things. I think in general, we tend to feel insecure if we're bringing those things to our professional life. But I have tried to always, and at ClassPass, we tried to create an environment where our employees would feel proud about their personal lives too, right? Whether they were running a marathon, right? Or winning some sort of competition. Like, I think it was so important. And I would invite everyone to my dance shows. I think it was so important for me to show up with my full self versus hiding parts of who I was. And I think that's been an ongoing journey in my entire life. And I feel really happy to be somebody who I truly feel is an authentic leader. Because I think when we stop showing parts of who we are, everyone gets confused and we're also not as effective as we can be. You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin. Today's episode, Bring Your Full Self. Early in her journey to starting the fitness booking platform ClassPass, Payal Katakia got mugged and maced. Afterwards, she was in shock, but she went to work the next day. She was so focused on building a scalable company that she didn't take the time to process her own trauma. But that experience taught her something extremely valuable, to value her own health and wellness, and beyond that, to nurture her own passions and personality. And she learned to bring more to the table at work than just financial projections. She learned to bring her whole self. And as a founder, over the past decade, she has done just that. Her passions for art, dance, and performance are all intertwined with the business she built over the years. Pyle stepped down from the CEO role of ClassPass in 2017, but she stayed active in the company. And after the company raised funding in early 2020 that gave it a billion-dollar valuation, it was acquired by MindBody in October of 2021. Now Pyle's also the author of the book LifePass, a groundbreaking approach to goal setting. But before all of that... She was a New Jersey kid in search of a community and a passion. So I feel very blessed that when I was younger, uh, my parents put me in Indian dance classes. And I know at the time it feels like just a random activity you put your kid in. And we do that a lot, obviously, for our own kids. But I found something in that that helped me find a place of service to others. And I know that's an interesting way to think about it. But to me, I think a life in service of others is really the most important thing. And I somehow found the ability to impact others at a very young age through dance. And once I felt that feeling, I just was addicted to this way of impacting and helping others and making people feel something. And I truly believe that, you know, that was where my destiny was in something that 
made me go into that feeling resonated with that. And whether that ended up being a tech company or a dance performance, it didn't really matter to me. I think I knew I was always going to follow where that feeling was there. And it turns out your first startup was a dance company. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I I, uh, graduated from college, I guess, in 2005 and came into the real world. I had a job at Bain, which was amazing. But, you know, I think I had found that dance was my heartbeat and I always wanted to start a dance company. And uh, luckily enough, like a few years later, I had felt I had learned enough about the landscape in New York City and the arts and uh, culture scene to start something. And I was really inspired uh, by dance companies like Alvin Ailey, obviously the Martha Grand Company, um, the New York City Ballet. And I thought to myself, why not create something in which I could represent my own culture and who I was and my threads through dance? So I started a dance company, which honestly taught me most of what I needed for entrepreneurship. And I sometimes think ClassPass started with a small dance show that I put on in the middle of New York City. Interesting. What did you learn from that first experience um, starting a dance company, putting on the actual shows and and performing that applied to ClassPass later on? You know, I think anytime you execute on a vision, you learn that you can actually get things done and it gives you confidence. So at a cornerstone, I would say, let's keep it at that. But I think when it, I really bring it down to the details of it, I mean, I was able to get 10 girls who literally all had crazy jobs as well to come together on, you know, every weeknight to dance, to perform, to create together and give me their time towards a vision. And I think that goes to leadership and motivation. I think another big part of it was I was in a space in an industry I did not know, right? I had come from MIT. I then was, you know, in my early 20s in the middle of New York City. I did not know how to put on a show production-wise, stage management, lighting designer. And I went to what I knew. I went to my contacts. I went to my network and I reached out and I found exceptional people in the field to help me. And that, once again, is a very big part of entrepreneurship. And then I think the last part of it, which this part was sort of shocking for me, and I always forget that I think like this, but I really built like a brand with Saw and I built, um, you know, it was marketing. I mean, I sold out my shows right away. And I don't think I ever really talk about that because I was like, oh, well, it was so small in my mind when I think about it back then. A hundred people, or even our second show was a thousand. But to actually get a thousand people to purchase a ticket to show up to a dance show in the middle of New York City on a Friday and Saturday night was actually a huge accomplishment. And that made me feel good about, you know, being able to like, hire press, like do social media, people, you know, being able to market and get people to show up and I think it was a lot of those skills, which like at the end of the day are the same things that you need to start a company. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm actually surprised that you had uh, three different answers there. That's, that's, it's a <laughs> lot that really does translate. Um, so let's talk about ClassPass. Uh, you officially founded ClassPass in 2011, but ClassPass didn't quite start as the ClassPass that everyone knows and thinks of now. What was its very first sort of spark and first iteration? So it started in, truly in 2010, in August of 2010 is when I had that aha moment. And for me, I really wasn't exposed to entrepreneurship around that time. I had to really go out to Silicon Valley to really be exposed to it. And I went to a friend's house where a lot of people there were entrepreneurs. And it made me really curious about the field. And it made me start thinking, what if I can come up with an idea? And, you know, luckily enough, 36 hours later, I was 
searching for a new ballet class to take in the middle of Manhattan, couldn't find it. I had this sort of epiphany that, wow, like what if we can build an open table for classes, which didn't exist in the world, right? And at that time, there was a lot of emphasis on these online to offline models like Seamus Web, ZocDoc, OpenTable, and they were growing in scale and size. And so I decided, hey, why don't I take the sort of battle I had to technology force and into the internet and start this company? And so that's really when the spark really came to me. The first name of the company was actually Dabble NYC, which most people don't even know because I didn't even realize that I, I was solving something that wasn't just a Manhattan problem, even when I first had it. And then I quickly realized that, no, this is actually not even a national problem, but a global problem, really, that people needed to solve. And so um, the first product we worked on, and we can go into all the mistakes I made, but you know, spent way too long building it, obviously had a lot of upward momentum. Um, it's something I, I like to talk about, but I call them false signals of success because I was very much you know, into, okay, I got fundraising and I got into a tech incubator. We had some followers and email addresses. Great. Like I must be doing all the right things. And we launched to you know, some of that fanfare at the end of demo day um, of our incubator and no one signed up for class and the product didn't work and it was really devastating. But I really believe like that's the day I became an entrepreneur because that was the day I needed to sort of let go of these false signals of success and really focus in on the mission that I really wanted to build. That's so interesting. Um, looking back, was there any way that you could have spotted those false signals of success or that others could learn from that? The biggest thing I would say, and I know in like the tech world, we talk about MVPs a lot, just put something out there. Do not get stuck in the branding, the beautiful website design, you know, building everything so it's overly perfect. Like I had every reservation happening like through this algorithm and all of that. I didn't need any of that. I just needed literally someone to say, I want to go to this class. And it literally come to my inbox for me to book it for them. Like that was as simple of a model it needed to be in the beginning. But I think we just thought it was going to work, right? We were in this mindset that it had worked in another industry. So why wouldn't it work in this one. And I think, you know, for a lot of consumer behavioral problems, right, like things that are going to honestly change the way people are going to live, the best way to know if it's going to work is not actually sitting behind the technology, it's actually doing it in real life. And I think once we pivoted and became really scrappy, I think that's, like I said, when I really became an entrepreneur, because we were making those reservations, we didn't care how good the technology was, we said sorry, if it was broken, we weren't overbuilding, we were really making sure we were focused on getting people to class. I want to talk to you a little bit about your funding journey, you noted that you had funding from the get go pretty much through the incubator. Um, the entire life center of your business, women and people of color have been just notoriously underrepresented um, in, in venture capital and in the venture capital funding ecosystem. How was your journey um, personally through finding, you know, layers of VC funding as, as the business went on? So I will say, you know, my community actually supported me for my friends and family round. I think 75% of my first round, which was close to over a million, um, actually was from the South Asian community, which I really feel honored to be able to even say that. And I think it's because a lot of them had obviously seen my credentials. I had gone to a good college. I went and worked at a good place after. And then they had actually also seen my dance company succeed. And that gave them that extra 
extra motivation to say this girl can go and build stuff and do stuff. And so I think my experience followed me. That being said, I think as the later rounds came on, I think, and we were stuck in this pivoting, iterating time period, it was harder. And the reason it was harder, I would say, is because a lot of the people I was talking to didn't understand the boutique fitness space. So a lot of times people would try and pivot me into personal training or into gyms and into a space that you know, to be honest, the male demographic was more attuned to. And I'll also say this, I, you know, came from a place where I didn't grow up with a lot of money. Like I didn't, I was not privileged in that way. And I wanted to make sure that I was making fitness something that was accessible. Like, and at the end of the day, I wanted everyone to have what I had in dance. And that was not something that should be for only a small group of people. And so even in terms of pricing and figuring all of that out, I needed to find the right people in the room to realize I was solving a problem for the 99% of people who were really scared to go into that gym and did not know how to access a personal trainer and couldn't afford it. And so that was sort of the harder battle for me is to figure that out. And, you know, it took me, I would say, and I, I didn't actually think about this at the time. I think since conversations have really come up in recent times, it's actually made me reflect on it more that it did take me a little bit longer to raise some capital after that initial seed round because of the fact that people didn't understand the industry I was in. Yeah, I mean that completely makes sense in in hindsight too. I mean cuz you were you were working with this kind of changing business model that that needed to adapt both with time and with consumer behavior and with prices. You know, at, kind of figuring out that pricing model took years and years to sort of get right and get right for consumers. Um and I appreciate that you said, you know, you're trying to keep in mind that there's folks that aren't going to be able to pay this kind of the private gym membership fee, right? Um, how did you kind of keep that in mind all the time when when maybe that wasn't always the smartest business decision or look best on paper? It was hard. You know, it was hard every time we had to increase prices, right? But at the end of the day, you know, my CFO always said this. He's like, you know, we have a problem that a lot of founders wish they had is we have over-engagement, right? We had too many people booking classes. And I think about the first three years of the company where I just fought to get one person to go to class. And here we were on the other side where the business model was hurting a bit. And we've really needed to figure that out and test new things out while still making the ability to work out and move accessible to others. So, you know, we had to do a lot of experimentation, but at the heart of all of it, I think we always knew that we wanted to keep making these products accessible to our customers because that was at the heart of what we had always started. So I know when you're a founder and when you're growing a fast-growing company every year, sometimes every month can feel like a huge challenge or like something new is being thrown at you. But was there ever a moment in those in those early years in particular, because um, we can talk about more recent years in a moment, that you just thought, this is not going to work, or even if this company makes it, I'm not going to make it? So to be honest, no. And I, I know that sounds odd to say, but I really believed I was going to figure it out. And and. I think it's that confidence that I really want other people to have, especially when they come from whether it's underrepresented communities or or minority in this space. You almost need to be like, no, every part of who I am was built to solve this problem. I'm not going to let anything really stand in my way. That being said, I definitely remember this one time, um, you know, my co-founder and I, we were both in Techstars. We got maced and mugged sitting at a coffee shop, working on our demo day deck. And, you know, I had never really had anything like that happen to me. And after that moment, 
I think I went numb a little. And I'm one of those people who, you know, I like to move. I like to act. I like to empathize with people. And I kind of shut down. And so that was just a rocky period for me because I think I just like lost my senses a bit in that experience. But I very quickly, and I always remember this moment, it was about two months after the incident where I felt my emotions come back and I felt the fire of what I was building come back. But sometimes life happens, you know, and and I realized like the mistake I had actually made was to shut it down. I think everyone was like, Viola, are you okay? And I was in this tech incubator and I started coming back to like work the next day and I was showing up with a smile and everyone's like, I think you should go home and like make sure you're okay. And I tried to hide it and just act professional and act like nothing was wrong. And that was definitely the mistake that I made in that time to take care of myself because I knew I needed to be okay for my company, which meant taking care of me on top of the company. Yeah. Has that given you insight into how to take care of yourself as things have progressed? I mean, maybe you haven't, I hope you have not been mugged or mazed since then, but those traumatic experiences can help cope with smaller things as well, I find. Absolutely. Um, You know, I think what I really learned through this whole period is to bring my full self to everything I'm doing, whether that's, you know, the fact that I'm going to get married or going to have a kid is not really be shy about those things. I think in general, we tend to feel insecure if we're bringing those things to our professional life. But I have tried to always, and at ClassPass, we tried to create an environment where our employees would feel proud about their personal lives too, right? Whether they were running a marathon, right? Or winning, you know, some sort of competition. Like, I think it was so important. And I would invite everyone to my dance shows. I think it was so important for me to show up with my full self versus hiding parts of who I was. And I think that's been an ongoing journey in my entire life. And I feel really happy to be somebody who I truly feel is an authentic leader because I think when we stop showing parts of who we are, everyone gets confused and we're also not as effective as we can be. Great. Let's talk about the other part of your last answer, which, you know, you said you just always believed that you could do it and that you were the person to bring your vision to life. How do you maintain that sense of confidence in your idea and in your ability to execute? Do you have any tools that you use to, I don't know, to just bring it? So I think at the root of it, I cared so much about the why, right? I never, ever let go of caring. So every single time someone booked a class on the platform, I celebrated. I was never like, oh, I'm exhausted or I don't care about that reservation. I think the fact that we were giving people so much of that joy that I think I always found in dance was a really important part of it, which brings me to my second point, which is I kept dancing my life. I think a lot of times, a lot of people were like, you're too busy. How are you dancing? Are you crazy? You're going to dance rehearsal right now. And I'd, I'd like book performances. And I was like, this is the why. If I lose this, I am going to lose the motivation and the fire behind all of this to keep going. So I think it's important that people remember their why, especially when, honestly, the responsibility of all this, right? You get more and more money. There's press on you. There's just there's people you employ. There's just more and more responsibility that comes on you. But if you let that eat up the heart of why you started, you're going to end up becoming smaller and smaller in that equation and stop fighting. And so that's been like a very big part of what I've done. Um, on the other like flip side, I would say, you know, and, and I have a book coming out, but I talk about my method called the Life Pass Method, which is this goal setting method that I started about seven years ago in my life. And this kind of answers your other question too about how I kind of navigated my life a bit. But I realized actually right when ClassPass was taking off, I was in a place where personally, I think my life was in shambles. I 
I was like single. I had bad friendships. I, my health was bad. But here I was about to have this, this company that was literally having hockey stick growth and I knew was going to take off and take up all of my time and energy and that I would be, you know, it would be a success. Like I just felt it in my heart. But I realized I needed to put my same type of type A planning that I put towards my professional life into my personal life. And that's when I really developed a method that, you know, helped me to really set goals in all aspects of my life. So I didn't really have these weird cracks where I would feel lonely or feel like I didn't have the right people around me, but being intentional about it and also setting goals because I'm one of those people who I like to set goals and I like to check them off. I, I, try, I have a contract myself. If I say I'm going to do something, it's most likely going to get done. And so for me, it was really figuring out what did I want to write down that I really wanted to do. All right. Aside from writing down the goals, what's the method? I'll, I'll bite on that. How, <laughs> tell me more about the book and congratulations. Thank you so much. Um, well, the book is called Life Pass and, and most of the book is actually about different constraints we all face in our lives. And there are different things in my life that I face from, we were just talking about identity issues, fear of failure, expectations from society. And then there's real constraints, not having enough money, not having enough time, not knowing the right people. And so I go through each of those constraints because I think first, before you even goal set, you need to know what's blocking you before you can even be free to do it. And then the end of the book is a goal setting method. It takes about 90 minutes, so we can't do the whole thing now, but I can explain the system and the way I came up with it, which is the first part of it is to reflect, to actually get really, really intuitive on how you're feeling and how your last year has been. This is really just not about writing down here the things I accomplished. This is truly about, here's how I majority of the time felt in this last year, to just anchor yourself on that. Then we do the same exercise where we dream and I go ahead and I think about what do I want to feel in this coming year? So it's literally not just about accomplishments again. It's truly about when I think about this year, how do I want to feel? What themes do I really want to be present? So then I am anchored in that sense of a dreaming state that feels very in line with how I want to feel. And once again, I think it's important to start with feelings and emotions because I think we tend to throw those out and we go right to the good stuff without really thinking about where we are. And I think for me, everything has come from a place of my heart, my intention, emotion, before I even get to the part where I'm going to set goals. And then the third part is all about focusing. We go through a time diagnostic, figure out what areas of your life we're going to focus on because you can't do everything all at once. And then the last part is goal setting, like I said, which I have had, I've had goals my whole life. And I think I'm pretty good at figuring out you know, how to make them measurable, how to make them actionable, and that's really what I want to give people. So instead of saying things like, I'm going to read more, right, or meditate more, which doesn't translate into anything, it's actually about making it a lot more tangible and starting with step one versus step 10 in the process. Yeah, I like that first step because I feel like uh, it's easy to write something down on paper, but that might not actually be connected to what you want to be feeling, right? Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's usually where these goal setting methods go wrong and I think have gone wrong for me because then I'm just writing goals based on everyone else's expectations of my life and not my own wants. What did you learn um, in the process of writing the book, in the process of working on the book? I know that it, as an author myself, it, it's a huge undertaking and, and yet it's also a learning experience um, and can be a growing one. What did it bring to you? It's brought a lot to me and it's still bringing a lot to me because it's about to come out. And I think when you start having people read it and it, feel it, I think that to me, once again, going back to what I talked about in the beginning, I love making people feel something and I, I can't wait for people to feel something from the book. And like I said, uncover their own 
journeys for for who they are. But, you know, I wrote the book during COVID and right when I had my baby too. And it was a hard time. You know, it was a lot of transition going on in my own life. There were many times when I was writing it, reflecting on my own life and saying to myself, I need to even remember when I was like this because the world had felt so different during this time and my life had felt so different. So it was almost therapeutic for me to write the book and actually even sometimes even take my own advice. When we come back, I'll talk to Pyle about how, when faced with a life-changing decision, she made one choice when the world was telling her to do the opposite. But first, a quick break. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Let's talk a little more about the last couple of years at ClassPass. After changes to the business model, you saw exponential growth. You had like 700 or 1,000 employees at one point, but then you made the decision to step down as CEO. Tell me more about that. Yeah, and I think when you're a founder of a company, you live and breathe it. It is your baby, and you really get sucked into it. And Everyone will be like, you need to do this, you need to do this, and you will do it because you care so deeply. But the founder role, especially the founder CEO role, changes significantly as you hire more people and obviously raise more capital. And I think for me, I just realized I wanted to be in a role that felt authentic to me, that kept me aligned to my mission and vision. And that meant someone else doing certain things that I just really didn't want to do. And honestly, that I knew I could be doing other things much better. And I think it really comes down to being self-aware about those things. I think it's very hard because a lot of times people, it's an ego thing, right? Where people are like, oh no, how do I give up a title? The hardest part about this whole situation for me was that this was right at the time when there was that huge wave of female CEOs coming up and everyone in the press was talking about it. And that actually was the hardest part for me because I knew that wasn't what I really wanted, even though everyone else was glorifying it. I actually was being very comfortable saying I didn't want it, but it was hard to kind of go against what the world was pushing me towards at that moment when I know authentically, I'm like, I've been doing this for seven years. I've, I don't need anyone to tell me I have the power or I have a title. I know that I love my company. And so that was more of the harder decision I had to go through in my head. And I wanted to make sure for any little girl out there, I was never, ever giving an impression that they couldn't be or do anything that they wanted to. But I knew the best version of me was doing the most authentic role that was going to suit me. Yeah. I mean, and you were still like spokesperson of the company and doing a ton, you know, day to day, if not every single CEO function, right? Right. Absolutely. And I think, you know, finding the right teammate, right? I think this is the hardest part. I think founders uh, to ask me about this all the time. 
honestly, the freedom to do any of these decisions, the freedoms to continue to create as a founder and be in the role you want comes from having a good team. I don't think there's any other way to do it. And I got lucky. Fritz was my first, um, he put together my seed round. He led my series A. He's somebody who's literally been involved in the company with me from the earliest days. So I even remember when I started searching for people, we had interviewed a bunch of people and my gut was just like, Fritz, you got to do it. And I just remember calling him up one day. I'm like, there's no one else who can do it. And he's like, damn it. Like, and then he decided to like fly. I remember the, the conversation and he was like, all right, I'm moving to New York. And he had to get his wife. And I think they were about to have a new baby or they just had a new baby to fly to, you know, fly across and move to New York. And I'm like, you just have to do it. And this is our, this is what we, we need to do. It's like a marriage, you know, and you figure it out and you make the decisions that you need. But um, I think that's really the the heart of it is finding the right people and cultivating that. I think a lot of times as founders, we don't think about that because we're in go mode, but hiring a good team around you is actually what's going to give you the freedom to keep being in the role you want to be in. Absolutely. So then 2020 came a few years after that. So many businesses had, um, you know, had their revenue just severely affected by the pandemic. Um I've heard what happened to ClassPass, but I'd love to hear it from your perspective. Um, and you had, on top of all of the pandemic craziness, you had just had your your first baby. So you were on parental leave um, when the pandemic hit. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I my son was six weeks old. Oh, my um, gosh. When we went into <laughs> lockdown. So basically, he was a month old, really, when all the news started coming in. And we started seeing that studios were shutting down, obviously, in Asia first. And then it came here. And it was a really tough moment. But I will say this, the company that we built was one that had been here before. I think we, you know, we've talked about our journey, whether it was through iterations, pivots, pricing changes, we've always been able to move quickly and be able to sort of keep the ethos of who we are behind that. And we quickly turned to how do we keep people moving, which was why literally overnight we flipped our entire homepage to being a virtual and digital platform for our studio owners and for our VOD content. And at the same time, we really did everything we could from government petitions to helping our studios get revenue in other ways to fight for them because they're actually the ones I think, you know, who are getting the hurt most in this, you know, in through this pandemic, they have fixed costs. They cannot keep going. They cannot employ people. And um, that's really been where a lot of our attention has gone, you know, and I think it was a really tough time to be, you know, honest on for all founders and CEOs who had any kind of business in the experience world. It was just a tough time, you know, and it, it was hard to wait and it was hard to get hopes up and then have to say, okay, it's not working again, but all you can do is keep strategizing and believing. And I think we have obviously all the faith in the world that we're going to be on the other side of this. So it was a matter of getting through it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but like, don't downplay it. Like you it's reportedly lost like 96% of revenue yeah. like immediately. I mean, that's, that's a lot. Um, yeah. We, I mean, we halted all of our memberships. I mean, we knew that was the right thing to do. We luckily had just raised capital, you know, and I think that really helped us have our at least confidence in being able to move forward. And like I said, focus on getting through this and focus on getting our partners through this. Yeah, yeah. How how are studios doing now? Um, things feel like they're rebounding a little bit. Like, is is your business and and how are studios doing? 
Yeah, well, you know, Class West got acquired um, yeah. last October, so that congratulations. That was, uh, thank you. Yeah, and so you know, I think a big thing has been you know putting Mind Body and Class Pass together in this place now, where together they can help the industry. I think that was a very important you know reasoning behind the combination of the companies is to know that both companies who've obviously been involved in the industry for so many years would now have um, the chance to work together to really rebuild the industry. So obviously, you know, we're seeing people going back to class and I'm actually no longer um, officially at the company anymore, but I know, you know, and I personally am using the, using class all the time and I see people. So we're hoping, you know, things obviously get better, but you know, we have to keep waiting to see what's going on with the CDC and health um, restrictions. So looking at, at this industry from and uh, taking a step outside um, from an outside perspective, what do you think the future of personal fitness is going to be? I mean, people are taking such a leap and doing their workouts online these days, still so much more. What do you see is going to happen in the future? So I think it's, you know, great that so many people ripped the Band-Aid off during the pandemic of figuring out how to work out at home. I mean, that benefits themselves. It benefits the entire industry, uh, which is great. I do think, you know, going to classes is still a social experience, right? There is nothing like getting an in-person workout from a teacher and being around others. It gives you just an extra added motivation. Um, so I think there's going to be probably be a hybrid model, like the same way we started ClassPass and the boutique fitness industry was growing. The only way to really tell is to see what people do and adapt and change as we learn. You can't really prescribe in situations like this. It's really about seeing what people are interested in and being able to build products that are going to continue to help them have access to the best workouts and, and movements. And, you know, I think one of the cool things we did during the pandemic, which um, has always been a part of the vision, was expand outside of boutique fitness into other areas. So we went into beauty and massages, and that was always really about adding different types of experiences. And some of those were just easier during the pandemic times for people to have access to and continue to use their class pass for. Oh, that's so neat. Would you do it again? Are you going to do it again? Do you have ideas for the future? I mean, I know that you, you just did another semi-entrepreneurial thing, which is write a book. Um, Correct. <laughs> what's next? Um, I love and hate this question at the same time, but, um, you know, here's the thing. I feel like this has been one of the most amazing decades of my life. And, you know, I think about how I got started in those first few years that it took me, but my heart was so in it. And I know that for me, it's finding something that's going to feel the same exact way and put the next decade of my time into it. So I'm in that search right now for that thing, you know, and I think if it takes me some time, it's okay. Like I said, it's, it takes a marathon, right? Not a sprint to build these things. And I, I care more about deeply wanting to pursue something than just going and pursuing something. Obviously there's a thousand things I know I can do. And I sometimes have to declutter my calendar from just things that end up, you know, being on there. And I have to say to myself what I really want to do, but you know, we just sold the company in October and now my book's coming out this February. So it's just been a really busy, busy time. I think I need to take like a little break and then figure it out and find some time to really um, get in touch with what I really want to be doing. And I actually talk a lot about this in the book of, you know, it's all about finding your calling and finding what's your true north. And um, I really think that, that I'm on a journey back to that, that purpose right now, because that's going to guide me through the next chapter of this, my life. Fantastic. Pyle, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Christine.
After speaking with Pyle, what stuck with me was her unending confidence in her path and in her decisions. She began with a dream of building a scalable business, but she also began with a why. And through the years, through the pivots, through the very rocky changes to her business model, and even through stepping back from her role as CEO, she never forgot that why. That's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow wherever you are listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Our producer, who still struggles with booking the right ballet classes, is Joshua Christensen. Our production assistant is Blake Odom, and our editor is Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know. What I Know.